The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I found there was another page on the topic that we were talking about before lunch. And I had covered almost everything that was on that page already, except for one thing, and it was about right view. So I wanted to come back to that briefly, since Steve had asked that question about right view. And I think of of right view as definitely being, um, it has these stages to it. The first one being the um, understanding of what's skillful and unskillful in terms of leading us away from suffering and towards freedom from suffering. And that's very much a kind of conventional form of a view. You know, it's the it's the kind of view that we have an idea about what's skillful and unskillful behaviors, and we, we follow that. And to me, that seems like a very f- traditional form of a view. But there's another way of um, thinking about right view. And I found this description... Um, by Paul Fuller, he's another scholar of Theravada Buddhism. In the book, it's from a book called The Notion of Ditti and Theravada Buddhism, where Ditti is the term for view. And he says, To abandon wrong view, or all views, is to abandon attachment to doctrine, not doctrine itself. The doctrine of anatta is not concerned with whether or not there is self, but with the fact that craving is the cause of dukkha. Knowledge of this is right view. Knowledge consists in knowing the cessation of craving, and this is knowledge of things as they are. When the texts teach that one should strive to attain right view, they are arguing for the attainment of a very specific attitude, a way of apprehending things without any form of attachment. Right view is not simply another view as opposed to wrong view, nor is it the rejection of all views. The opposite of wrong view is of a different nature, not a mere correction, but a different order of seeing. And I think that's a very interesting way to look at right view, that it's not actually the kind of view that we think about. I mean, it's in its full flowering, its full manifestation of someone who is completely free. It's a different way of seeing the world. It's not an actual opinion that's held. It's a, it's, a, it's a different way of observing our reality. So I like that, um, that description. So the first topic I'd like to talk about this afternoon was just, it was one way that I explored this text. I noticed that I kept running into similar phrases over and over again. Um, and on page eight of the handout, the phrase that I kept running into over and over again is what is seen, heard, or cognized. And I got curious about that phrase and just decided to pull out the verses or some of them. And this is not all of them, I don't think, from the um, text that I've listed here. Some, I don't know, dozen or so verses that use this phrase or are related to this phrase. And so I just wanted, I just thought, I'm going to just look at these phrases and see what, because I, I got curious about this phrase and I kept seeing it over and over again. And it's found in um, all the different kinds of suttas. It's found in the Atakavaga. It's found in those 
suttas that describe a person who's liberated. It's found in those suttas that describe an ordinary person. I mean, a liberated person, an ordinary person. And it's found in those suttas that describe the training. It's found in those suttas that talk about views. It's found in those suttas that talk about sense desire. So it's really across the board where this phrase is used. So I, I thought I'd just explore that a little bit and see if I could see any themes that came out of that. And then I picked one of those themes or a pair of those themes that I particularly had juice for, and, and then I'd like to explore that in a little more detail. So just a, a few of these. Um, we won't read these all in detail, but um, so just a quick a summer, uh, a, qu- a few of these verses. In Sutta 4, um, verse 793, he is peaceful towards everything, whether seen, heard, or cognized. So that's describing someone who is free from suffering. So peaceful towards everything. In Sutta number 5, verse 798, which is the second one in your uh, handout under Sutta 5, a monk should not rely on what is seen, heard, or cognized. In Sutta number 6, both of those, just as a water drop does not stain a lotus leaf or a red lily, so a sage is not stained by what is seen, heard, or cognized. He does not suppose he is purified by what is seen, heard, or cognized. So some, there's some kind of repeated threads there. There's the, the not clinging to, not soiled by, not stained by, what is seen, heard, cognized. That, I think, goes along with um, um, not supposing one is purified by what is seen, heard, or cognized. And the sense of being peaceful about what is seen, heard, cognized. Now, again, I think part of the reason I picked this theme is because it really points out how tied this text is to the world, to our daily life, to what we experience, what we see, what we hear, what we think about. And that it's the clinging that we are um, interested in exploring about what we are, what is seen, heard, and cognized. And then there's a couple of other um, themes that I found. So in Sutta 2, The combination of 778 and 779, he is not soiled by what he sees or hears, comprehending the nature of perception, not soiled by possessiveness. So the soiled part ties the the two verses together. Um, So there's a tie here between comprehending the nature of perception and somehow not being soiled by or Clinging to or adhering to, I think, is the translation Tan Jeff uses, adhering to what is seen, heard, cognized. So there's a connection between those two, perception and uh, clinging to what is seen, heard, and cognized. Comprehending perception leading towards freedom from clinging from what is seen, heard, and cognized. So that's a piece that I really I thought was very interesting, that there may be a connection there. And then in Sutta number five, Another thread that I think I found tying together, the, um, the third one, number 802. Whoever does not conceive the slightest conception about what is seen, heard, cognized, 
This Brahman who has grasped no view, how could anyone have any doubts about it, him? So not forming a conception or any, any ideas or thoughts around what is seen, heard, cognized. So I'd like to focus on these last two, on, on un, a comprehending perception uh, around seen, heard, and cognized, and this notion of conceiving, um, conceiving ideas about what is seen, heard, cognized. So first, I'd like to just talk a little bit. We talked a little bit about perception and view this morning, the distinction between perception and view. Now just a little bit of distinction between perception and conceiving or perception and conception. So this, the conceiving part in the other texts, if we look into the other Buddhist texts, conceiving generally has the connotation of taking something as this is myself, this I am, this is mine. So it relates to that movement of um, selfing. Conceiving and selfing are Considered almost synonymous, the term uh, conceit is mana in Pali, and it, it, it generally refers to this, this act or movement of creating a self. So that's, that's a different thing than perception, but there's a link between the two. And some of the texts in the, some of the verses in the Atakavaga actually are, create some of the clearest links between these two ideas, which I thought was very interesting. So I want to talk about what um, what the Atakavaga has to say about perception and about how conceiving and perception are related and about the term papancha, which is uh, essentially distorted perception. And that is also used in the Atakavaga, this term papancha. So I wound through doing that kind of exploration of that thread. I came back to this, these ideas of perceiving, conceiving, and papancha, and found a lot of interest in myself in exploring that topic. So that's, that's one of the things I picked out to look at here. So Sutta 11, which I think I have, oh, I'm now on page 10. Now, the overall structure of this sutta, the topic, the title of this sutta is called Quarrels and Contention, which gives you an idea about what, what it's about. And the basic, um, the basic idea is that somebody comes to the Buddha and says, so where do quarrels come from? Why do people quarrel, dispute? Why is there lamentation, sorrow, selfless pride, conceit, malicious speech? From where do they come? So the Buddha answers this in a sense by, in one of his standard ways, by chaining back. Well, quarrels directly come from this thing, and then that thing comes from this thing that happens before that, and that thing comes from this thing that happens before that. So this is kind of chaining back of causes. So he basically says quarrels and disputes 
result from cherishing and greed, or Tan Jeff's term, what is dear. Satatisa uses preferences. So quarrels, disputes, and sorrow uh, result from preferences, what is dear, from cherishing and greed. Those result from relishing, which everyone else translates as desire, so essentially craving. Those result from feeling of pleasing and displeasing, and pretty much everybody translated it in that way. And pleasing and displeasing results from sense contact, the the body-mind experience, and the fact that it comes into contact with consciousness. And uh, the sense contact results from the fact that we have a body and a mind. And then he says that faculties of body and mind are related to perception and propancha. So I'll I'll follow through the thread here of how he says all of that. Um, We're not going to read this entire uh, the the entire set of verses that I have here, but I'm going to pull out the thread of how he winds back. This this is a pretty um, complex sutta, I think. It contains more than this single thread, um, but I think it's more time. It would take more time than I had to follow all the threads through. So I'm just going to pull this one thread out. And I think, for me at least, it's very interesting to explore, you know, really reflect on how all of the ideas, as they are shown, uh, resonate with your own experience. So looking at um, how what you read can you can you take it in and understand it in experience, not just as an idea, but understand it as experience? So I'm going to follow this um, basically from what is pleasing and displeasing through to uh, the connection with perception and papancha. So the Buddha says, dependent on what is called pleasing and displeasing, relishing arises. Anger, lies, perplexity, and other such things also arise when what is pleasing and displeasing exists. Then the questioner asks, so what is the source of the pleasing and displeasing? When what is not, do they not exist? The Buddha says sense contact is the source of the pleasing and displeasing. When there is no sense contact, the pleasing and displeasing do not exist. So this, you know, this is really... Um, these pieces I have seen in my own experience in terms of what dependent on pleasant and unpleasant, there is the arising of this liking, this liking, wanting kind of thing. When, when something's pleasant, you like it, you want it. That's, that's pretty clear. That can be experienced in your own experience. I like the fact that he also ties anger Lies, perplexity, and other such things also arise when what is pleasing and displeasing exists. Because often in the other teachings around pleasant, unpleasant, he says that from pleasant and unpleasant arises craving. And that's as far as he goes. He doesn't really say, well, anger comes out of that, perplexity comes out of that. Essentially, all of the states of mind that will lead us into quarrels and contention arise out of this simple contact with what's pleasing and displeasing. And exploring that in your own experience 
is a very interesting, uh, interesting exercise. So what is the source of pleasing and displeasing? We have a body. We see sights. We hear sounds. Those sights, those sounds, those smells, those tastes, those touches all have that quality of being either pleasant or unpleasant. Then the questioner says, well, when what is not, do those not exist? When What is the source of pleasing and displeasing? Well, sense contact is the source. When there is no sense contact, pleasing and displeasing do not exist. So this begins to get a little more out of the realm of at least my experience. Um, although there are times when I noticed I've noticed that there can be times where I'm not aware of sense contact. Like if I'm focused on something um, in some part of my body and not aware of some other part of my body, you know, that it's like at certain times the, the focus of attention can be so strongly in one place. I'm just completely unaware that there is pain or any kind of feeling anywhere else in my body. So in that case, it's kind of like the attention is required for the sense contact to happen. So that's the closest that I can come to saying that I I kind of understand what it means for there to be no sense contact. Or I suppose sleeping. What is the source of sense contact? So the body is the source of sense contact. The Buddha says dependent on the faculties of body and mind is sense contact. The questioner, I'm down at the second to last one. For one arriving at what are the material elements annihilated and also pleasure and pain? So essentially the questioner is saying, okay, well, if it's dependent on the faculties of body and mind that there's sense contact, if if pleasure and pain depend on um, the sense contact, then let's get rid of the, the physical body. What what? How can we do that? Is that possible? And the Buddha says, this last line, for one not with ordinary perception, not with distorted perception, not without perception, not perceiving that which is annihilated, for one arriving at this, the material elements are annihilated, for perception is the source of psychological distortion. So I can't claim to understand this, truly. Um, the Mahanidesa commentary says that this verse, those four things it points out about perception, not with ordinary perception, not with distorted perception, not without perception, not perceiving that which is annihilated, that those refer to the four formless jhanas. The... Um, the, the, the jhanas, the states of concentration, the mind can get so concentrated that it does not experience the physical form anymore. And those four are their given names, the base of infinite space, the base of infinite consciousness, the base of no thingness, the base of, base of neither perception nor non-perception. So Tan Jeff is, uh, says that... Um, well, this is what the Mahanidesa says, that they're related to the formless jhanas. And to some extent, I can see that makes sense because the questioner is saying, well, how does one arrive at no form? And the standard Theravada view on that is the formless jhanas, is how one arrives at no form. 
So you, you get yourself into a state of concentration. You're not experiencing sense contact. You're not experiencing pleasure and pain. Tanjeff points out that the first three of the formless jhanas still include perception. And so he's not clear on how these, um, how these descriptions actually map to the formless jhanas. So I'm putting this out there as just, this has been my research around this particular statement. So I'm going to explore a little bit about how I think about it, because that's all I can do, really. Um, I think in this verse, he's clearly pointing, um, there's, the, there's the connection with the perception, and that there's some shift of perception with which we'll have a different relationship with our experience. And he points to this psychological distortion as coming out of perception. So there's not a clear link between psychological distortion and this whole unfolding chain that follows to quarrels and disputes. But there's an implicit connection there in some way. So essentially what we have here is that... um, Quarrels and papancha, that there's a connection between uh, quarrels and disputes and getting into those states. And then there's this other, these other links that we found uh, elsewhere in the Atakavaga uh, that, are, that link quarrels and disputes to holding views. So there's this link between quarrels and papancha and this link between quarrels and views. And so I'm seeing that there may be a kind of implicit link between this distorted perception and views, that there may be a tie here. So what I think is happening here is the Buddha is pointing at us to understand the phenomena of papancha and perception. comes back to this comprehend perception and understand this phenomenon of papancha. In my opinion, I think that if we understand perception and papancha, then we might understand this earlier part of the sentence. That if we, if we, if we can um, understand in our experience truly the truly comprehend perception and understand how this uh, papancha arises, we'll have a completely different experience of reality. So, papancha. P-A-P-A-N-C-A. And it, um, it does not have a clear definition in the suttas. It's often translated as psychological distortion, which is how it's translated in this last phrase here. Um, Tan Jeff translated, translates it as complication or complication classification. Other people translate it as um, proliferation, mental proliferation. So that there's not a clear description of what it is, but there is a description of how it arises. There's a description in the suttas of how it arises, how it leads to conflict, 
and how we can train our minds to let go of it. So the, the, one of the clearest descriptions of this papancha is in this sutta called the Honeyball Sutta, which I put in. This is the only non-Atakavaga excerpt in your package here. And we'll go through this in two parts. So again, this, this actually, this sutta, I think, this whole sutta uh, 18.16, could be taken as a commentary on, on the Atakavaga Sutta 11. Because it's very similar in structure. It talks about how quarrels and disputes are created based on this whole chain of causes that happen, leading back again to Papancha. So it's it's another um, form of this same information, only it's a little bit clearer. It's a little bit um, easier to understand. So in this sutta, the, the, it comes down to this one paragraph, 1816, in the Majjhima Nikaya. And the first part of it describes how Papancha arises. And uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translated this, and the term for papancha he uses is mental proliferation. So dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. So we have the eyes, we have things out there, the meeting, uh, the, there's the consciousness that comes uh, because of the eye and the, and the things out there. He says the meeting of the three is contact. So that's when the, the eye and forms and eye consciousness comes together, there's contact. That's the, the impingement of the eye, um, the, the light rays on the retina and the forming of a sight. That's the meeting of the three. With contact as condition, there is feeling. So because of the contact, there's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. What one feels, that one perceives. So because there's been this contact and the um, experience of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, actually in other places in the suttas it says that the feeling and perception actually come together. They arise simultaneously. So there's the perception of um, red, blue, yellow, etc. Square, flat, round, all of those things. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. So this is the way it works in our mind. And this is, you know, when we actually look at this, it's a really familiar phenomenon. We have an itch. There's the physical contact. You know, there's the physical contact where we've got a body, we've got an itch. And... We notice probably that it's unpleasant. We, we actually perceive at that moment the unpleasantness and the itch. You know, that, 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 that the perception is that it's an itch. There's this, the skin, there's the, um, the feeling of the, when there's the, the bump or whatever, and then there's the, the, the contact, that there's the consciousness of that feeling and that it is an itch. So that's the feeling and the perception. What one perceives, that one thinks about. Oh, I've got an itch. I wonder where this itch came from. I was working in my yard. Maybe I got a mosquito bite. 
This is the thinking. We think about what we experience. This happens like that. I mean, it's the way we live our lives. Sense impressions come in and we think about them. We don't really live so much in the reality of sense impressions as we do in our thoughts about the sense impressions. Now, that part up to what I've done isn't really the papancha yet. It's much more just thinking. You know, it's just like, okay, there's an itch. Got it in my backyard. Mosquitoes in my backyard. Then the mind starts to proliferate. What if that mosquito had West Nile virus? What if I get really sick? What if I end up having to go to the hospital for months and then I'm going to have to foreclose on my home and I'm going to be homeless? What's going to happen then? That is what I understand as papancha. That kind of explosion of thought into kind of a whole world. It's like we create a world in our thoughts and we live in that world. That's what I think about as papancha. Does that, does that resonate for the, the others of you who um, understand this term? Is that, hmm? Never happens, never happens. <laughs> so, you know, the Buddha is describing a very common phenomenon here. And this is actually where we live most of our lives in this kind of a thing. So, Papancha has formed. And the Buddha goes on. He says it actually doesn't stop. It's not as simple as that. He goes on. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a man with respect to past, future, and present forms cognizable through the eye. So I take this to mean that the world that we create, that, that kind of construction of papancha, that world that we create, we then see our reality through that world. So our perceptions then come in filtered through this lens of this, what could be thought of as a view, essentially. So I think that the, actually there's a huge connection between papancha and views. That, that um, essentially the, um, the papancha forms that lens of a view that we believe through which we see our experience. So I'll give another ex- example of this. So suppose... You see somebody walking down the street. That's probably usually a fairly neutral experience. It could be a neutral experience you don't know, if you don't know the person. So you see the person, maybe recognize them as a stranger. So that's the perception. There's a stranger there, and there's the feeling of what the experience is. In many cases, this might be neutral, a neutral kind of feeling. It's just a stranger across the street. But in this case, perhaps this stranger has the body type of someone who abused you when you were young. The experience might not be neutral because of all of the associations and um, programming, conditioning that came around being abused by someone who was neutral. 
I mean, who was who was had that body type. So that the view now looking through that experience is that this person is fearful, that that I am afraid of this person, that I don't like this person, that this person has that there's unpleasantness associated with this person because of that view. Um, and, And this is an unconscious in this case, it's kind of an unconscious view in ways because it's been developed from a time when you were very young. But still, it is some form of a view that people with this body type are threatening. Does that make sense? Does this make sense? And again, this kind of thing happens all the time. Essentially, the past comes into the present through the workings of our mind. The past things that we've experienced, um, it's like we have a... um, colored glasses on and we're seeing the world through our conditioning, through our uh, history. So the past comes into the present moment through this kind of belief, this, this, the way this, um, the mind constructs realities, constructs, um, Really, it's a, it's a view. I look at that as a view. It's constructing. Now we can't say, in in some ways, you know, it's, there's there's no one to blame about this. You know, this is the way our minds work. And it's not it's not so much that we're trying to change it. But you know what he points back to here in the Antakavaga is comprehend perception. And and in this case, in this sutta, it's pointing that. Perception also includes this distortion. So comprehending perception is comprehending that our minds work this way. Comprehending that um, there is this distortion that can happen through this uh, papancha. Did did you have a... Uh, I just want to ask a question. Sure. Um, If we... uh focus on the presence of the moment uh, or on the perceptions of, of uh, if we focus on the perceptions as they take place in the present uh, this in some way doesn't it uh, or would short if we do it uh, with awareness mm-hmm. Uh, short circuit the uh, injection of these uh, conditioned reflexes? Well, I think actually, um, I mean, to some extent, you've got the opportunity to see that there's the conditioning coming into play. But at the same time, I think a lot of what we see, I mean, essentially what comes up in our experience now is a result of our conditioning. You know, that, that things are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral because of things that have happened in our past. You know, it's not so much that they're inherently pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, but they're pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral based on our history. And we can observe now what is coming up now, but we are also observing essentially 
you know, like in that case of the person seeing somebody with the body type of someone that abused them, their experience of that is unpleasant. Now, they may not actually know why in that case, if it like happened when they were very young, they may not have any clue why they have that feeling. But the, um, the training in mindfulness is really just to notice, okay, there's unpleasantness there, not reject it and not act on it. The acting on it, I think, is essentially what continues to feed the view. So the way I look at it is that the mindfulness, essentially, it doesn't just kind of short circuit those views, but it allows them to kind of slowly get unwound because they're no longer being fed. And occasionally we can get to the place or occasionally we might see something kind of suddenly and have a, a, a kind of dramatic clear seeing. But more often I think it's the it's the kind of gradual seeing through things because the the non judgmental mindfulness is um, not adding to that view or re-cementing the view. I think these views actually take com- continual re-cementing in order to stay in place. You know, I, I think, uh, uh, I'll It seems to give the mind uh, that um, a, a degree of uh, space or, or um, what I want to say, uh, uh, a, a break in time, uh, some uh, uh, a chance to uh, for other aspects of the mind to to perceive what is going on. Yes. Rather yes. than, than uh, jumping right into the reaction. The reaction. Right. Right. I think that's true. I was just thinking, I, I think a lot about the idea of what we do about our current thoughts that occur to us, um, and sort of, this sort of seemed connected, and I think it connects most closely with right effort, where it talks about not letting, trying not to allow um, unwholesome states arise. Mm-hmm. If not that, then not only what we're doing and what we're saying, but what we're thinking is causing future things to continue. Again, if you can see in the moment, I mean, the the whole thing comes back to, if you can see in the moment a thought is simply a phenomenon that's arising as constructed phenomenon, if you're seeing it in that way, it is not leading on to future. Um, so a thought can arise if thought is, is as the thought is arising, if it's simply seen as this is a thought that's arising, being constructed by past it, it doesn't have that same weight essentially of carrying into the future. Anything else? So uh, earlier this morning I described um, so it's not only the past. It's not only the past that comes into our our moment, our, our present moment, to filter our uh, perceptions. As I described this morning, that story about the bat and the pig. It's also beliefs that just you know are coming up now that can influence our perception. So it's it's a very pervasive pattern of mind. So really, I find this to be a huge area of exploration. 
how am I perceiving things and what beliefs are coming into play? So one scholar had a beautiful way of, of phrasing this. And he called this process of distorted perception, he, he, he said, this is paraphrasing him, this is Professor, he must be a Hawaiian, Pali Hawadana, <laughs> Professor Pali Hawadana, um, describes the process of distorted perception as placing every, every bare perception onto a framework of emotional emotions and beliefs that have come out of our past, our history, and our conditioning. That's what happens to us over and over again. Our, our, um, the input into our sense doors is, is basically placed onto some kind of framework of what we believe, what we feel, what we think about that has come out of our, our conditioning. And he says this, robs the freshness of our experience. So I think that this distorted perception, this papancha, is very closely tied to this notion of adhering to what is seen, heard, cognized. It's that, that latticework or that framework of emotions and beliefs that's kind of the Velcro of our mind. That as perceptions come in and land on that, they stick. So without that, if we didn't have that distorted perception, we would not adhere to what is seen, heard, cognized. So that's kind of a little bit of an exploration of Papancha through another text, uh, through the, the Majima Nikaya. And then there is, back in the uh, Atakavaga, a connection between conceit and papancha. So connect, there's a, 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 te- a, a verse that connects conceit as actually the root cause of papancha. Conceit being this um, belief in I am or this process of selfing. So in this verse, I ask the kinsman of the son, this is on page 11, the great master, about seclusion and the state of peace, seeing in what way is a monk free of passion, grasping at nothing in the world. And the Buddha says, a sage should put an end to the root cause of psychological distortion, the thought I am. And this term what, what this in the Pali comes back to that term mana, which is conceit, which is what that other text was referring to. The mana? Mana. Yeah, no. M-A-N-A. Um, where was that other term of conceit? Oh, whoever does not conceive the slightest conception about what is seen, heard, cognized, this Brahmin has grasped no view. So, again, this is kind of linking um, between conceit, papancha, and views. Because here we've got papancha and conceit linked. A sage should put an end to the root cause of psychological distortion, the thought I am. 
And we've got um, conceit and views linked in Sutta 5. Whoever does not conceive the slightest conception about what is seen, heard, cognized, this Brahman who has grasped no views. So these, uh, these concepts are all kind of tied together. So going on, the Buddha said, ever mindful, he should train himself to abolish whatever craving he finds in himself. I think this is probably, I, I, when I read this, I, I read this, I, I feel like this, this one verse to me encapsulates almost the entirety of the Buddha's teaching. It talks about where the suffering is that the, the root cause of psychological distortion, the thought I am, is essentially that, the root of our suffering and the path. How does one do that? How does one put an end to that? By mindfully training himself to abolish craving. So it's in this craving to abolish craving. So in this um, one Verse, we have both the cause and the solution. Put an end to the root cause of psychological distortion, the thought I am. How do you do that? Mindfully abolish craving. Now, there's some other, ter- uh, other terms. I looked at other translations for abolish. Um, Tanjeff uses subdue. Norman uses dispel. And Saratisa uses let go. So I I really think this points us to, again, how this happens in layers. That we look at the craving we're experiencing, the kind of most obvious level of craving we're experiencing. Let go of that. The mindfulness itself is a form of letting go. As I I, uh, mentioned with what Judy was talking about, if we can see um, things arising as simply phenomenon arising, through mindfulness, if we're seeing things in that way, then it's no longer functioning as craving. Now we can't always can't always um, see things that way, but the mindfulness, you know, in the in the um, there's another analogy I like that um, talks about mindfulness acting like the wind and the sun and the sand on rotting rope. And that that's the way that mindfulness works. It's a very slow kind of dissolving of our attachments, thinking of the rope as being attachments. You know, we might not even ever see the last little filament of rope dissolving when it becomes not really a rope anymore. But there's some point at which it, it kind of falls apart and breaks down. So it's a, it's a slow process, and it's kind of like working from the outside in, looking at the, the more obvious kinds of craving, and just when those are let go of, there's more, and there's more to keep to keep. Deep, layer by layer, essentially re- revealing where the clinging is until we come to these um, clear recognition of this process of selfing, of this process of I am-ing, this process.
process of I aming, actually being something that's also just something that's happening in our minds. It's not a thing there that we are. It's simply a process that's coming and that we believe. It's essentially the most fundamental form of papancha that we believe is this this belief I am. The, the results of this practice of using this training. I like this description in Sutta 15. For whom in name and form, in every way, there's no sense of mine. Who doesn't grieve over what is not. He in the world isn't defeated, suffers no loss. To whom there doesn't occur, this is mine. For whom nothing is uh, for for whom nothing is others, feeling no sense of mindness, doesn't grieve at the thought I have nothing. Not harsh, not greedy, not perturbed, everywhere in tune. This is the reward I say when asked, for those who are free from preconceptions. For one unperturbed, who knows, there's no accumulating. Abstaining, unaroused, he everywhere sees security. So that that is the Atakavaga's promise, essentially. When we see this process of selfing, and that it is just a process, there's no no no, no perturbation. There's Security, essentially there is peace when there's no selfing. So I really actually think that of all the views, you know, the, the views incorporates many different kinds of views, but the fundamental one is this view I am. And I think it, that may be somewhat different than, than what is called identity view because there's this conceit piece, um, the mana, which is the um, poly for the selfing process, this I aming process, is different than the term for this identity view, which is Sakaya Ditti, which is personality view, identity view. And the I aming uh, is actually a deeper level of clinging than even the identity view. So um, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Does anybody have anything that they could add about that or say about that? Yeah. Well, and I had a question. I was wondering whether the identity view was one of the fetters that goes with stream entry, whereas the I am isn't is the fetter at the very end. Yes, that's 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 exactly that's that. Yes, that is it. That the identity, and I was going to actually talk about that in my next lecture a little bit. But the identity view is. In the standard Theravada view is one of the um, cravings that is let go of at stream entry, so at the first stage of awakening. And the um, conceit, the I am, is not until the very end. So in the Theravada tradition, it's clearly shown that they're different, You know that, that the identity view can go pretty early. But the sense I am lingers 
that, that, that feeling I am lingers until the very last moments before we actually wake up. And, and I'm sorry, could I ask you just to say once again a few more words about the identity view so that I'm clear on the difference between that and the That's hard. You know, I, does, anybody, does anybody else have any thoughts on that? Um, what's the difference between identity view and mana? Between identity view and I am conceit? I mean, I think, ah, uh, here, here, here's what the texts say. I just remembered this one. Um, that with identity view, we see, with, with being free from identity view, we see we are not feeling, we are not perception, we are not mental formations, we are not consciousness, and we are not body. So we see that we are not any of those, that, that identity is not tied to those things. And there's another sutta that describes a monk who has clearly seen that. But he says, but I still feel this lingering sense I am. And he goes, when somebody says, well, then clearly, you know, you're not a stream enter yet. He says, no, I clearly see I'm not my feeling. I'm not my body. I'm not my perceptions. And he uses an analogy. And he says, if you have a flower, um, would you say that the smell belongs to the petals? No. Would you say that the smell belongs to the stem? No. Would you say the smell belongs to the pistols? No. Well, what does the smell belong to? The smell belongs to the flower. In the same way, he says, the, I see that I'm not in any of those five things, and yet there's this lingering fragrance of I am. That's the best I can do. <laughs> yeah. my, my experience is that I, I Oh, Oh, the... In my experience, the I am just arises, whereas the, and of course the identity view does too, but the identity view is something More conceptual. that you think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm here, I'm, you know, I've got a name and I do this and that, and, you know, and you actually, uh, there's identification with that, whereas the sense of the, the, the conceit, the monarch, just shows up. It's it, like, it, it's just a reflex in the mind. And, and you can laugh at it and say, I know that's not true, but it still shows up. Yeah, yeah. I, I also, um, in something you said, there was a resonance. Um, go ahead, Roseanne. I can't think of it at the moment. Um, how about the... Um, the feeling of existence that we all have, um, just the sense of aliveness um, that all that we share with all sentient beings. Mm-hmm. In other words, everything that's alive has a sense of of itself, in, in that if it's threatened, it wants to protect itself, and uh, it, there's a sense of um, wanting to survive, and. Um, so I think that we carry that sense of I amness with us uh, all the time. Hmm. You know that it's just part of being alive. The way that um, you know that's you know human beings are really <clears throat> I'm kind of thinking more um, science in a science kind of way now that um, you know we're all just anim- part of the animal kingdom and 
you know, before that we were all these protoplasms and mm-hmm. stuff, you know, mm-hmm. going back in life that way. And um, so. Well, I, I would say some of the ways you phrased it, there may be some um, connection to what to what the difference is. Um, but in the teachings, there's the claim that it is possible to be free of this I am. That is possible to. I don't know whether or not have it arise anymore or just completely see through it when it arises, but that it is possible to not have that um, as a human, as somebody who's living in the world, and that that is part of what is held up as the, the possibility and complete freedom for one whom there's no sense of mine. doesn't occur to one, this is mine, including my life, including my existence. Um, now, on the other hand, you know, there's this, this thing of, that you said about just this sense of beingness, of being alive. That piece, I could conceive, continues even without the I aming. You know, that, 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 that might be possible to have the sense of some energetic experience of being without having the, uh, I mean, the I aming is essentially a very, very subtle thought. So if we got down to the point of no thoughts whatsoever, perhaps <laughs> we could see that. The other piece I thought about identity view is, this came when what, with what Tony was talking about. Um, I don't know if this, this relates. It seems probably that it's a little bit grosser than what the Buddha is saying, if he's actually saying, you know, not feeling, not perception, not consciousness is a pretty is a pretty deep form of clinging to not to see. We are not consciousness. That's a pretty deep form of letting go. Um, but I think what we often think of as identity is like I am the type of person who, you know, I am a miserable person. I'm a happy person. I'm a smart person. I'm a, I'm a, you know, and that that's typically what we think of as identity. And even letting go of that level of identification is a huge freeing. But I think even there's an even, you know, a level in between that complete letting go of mana and that letting go of those kinds of identities, which is the letting go of the aggregates. That's a pretty deep form of letting go, I think. I'll let Steve Steve talk here first. I was heard conceit was really comparing, thinking you're better, thinking you're worse, or thinking you're equal. And it's getting rid of that, like you, you meet somebody and almost unconsciously have a thought that you're, you're better. Or you're I think that's how Gil teaches it, um, or he often uses it that way. Um, but, but I think in the in the Majjhima Nikaya, it defines mana as the thoughts. This is mine. This I am. This is myself. Those three terms, and there being three different forms of craving that trigger each of those three. So that's that's the that's the, the standard definition. Now in this text also, you know, in in um, in the Atakavaga, over and over again, it talks about how it leads to comparing. 
Over and over again, he says, one who holds a view says, I am better than, I am equal to, I am less than. So that comes up over and over again, but I don't think that the conceit itself is the comparing. I don't think. So I'm just, I'm cold. Got it in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that has a form of comparing, I suppose, to what it would be if I was hot. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, <laughs> I think the, the, the Mahayana one is, is um, Dogen had the question, is mind of all sentient beings are enlightened, what do you need to practice? It worked for a long time, and he finally got it in China. And basically, what his master said is that Enlightened person doesn't think in terms of enlightened and unenlightened. Like I'm enlightened and you're not enlightened. Mm-hmm. You just don't play the game. I mean, that's I think the whole thing is with the comparing mind thing. You're better, worse. I mean, think what it would be well, like. This game thing would be. Imagine what it would be like. You just don't play the game. When, you, when you're in the room with people, you don't play that game of differentiation. Well, I think I think essentially there may not be that far of a difference between the two. I I, I wanted to actually avoid using the term non-dual because it's so um, I think people have different views of what that means. But, um, you know, if if you are in a state where there is no I am at all, there is no separation. There is no distinction. So it would kind of fall out that there would be no comparison either. But um, you know, so in that state of no I there's a kind of the non-dual of no distinction, no separation, no self, no other, which is what the duality, you know, what duality often refers to, that there's self, other. Um, so, you know, it... Um, but the, the definition, I don't think in, in the Pali, I, I mean, in, the, in the, the suttas, the canon, I don't think it actually talks about the comparing, except in this way of like views leading to that. But the, the conceit itself is just those three thoughts. Putting conceit at the root. <laughs> just interesting to me um, I mean it seems like they go together that you you don't the I am the whole reason I am arises is as she was saying sort of out of a biological I mean it sort of comes to get comes so intimately connected with something to protect or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, some reason to make this distinction yeah that would then give rise to craving I don't know if you had any thoughts or experience about or references in the suttas as to the connection between craving and the, craving the and conceit. conceit, which is deeper, or which is—is is, are they mutually co-arising? Well, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, the if we think about the um, dependent origination, um, craving, clinging, becoming uh, comes. So craving comes first. It's more basic. Yeah, <laughs> it's a cycle. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's 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 one of those last fetters, and one of those other ones is restlessness, which isn't an object of mind. It's just something that <clears throat> it's just an action of the organism. Mm-hmm. You know, 
so this conceit is an act is just it just happens, which it can stop when you see clearly. But it's it's like it is it is something that just happens. Yeah, yeah, and the other one is um, ignorance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, are you ready for a break? I think I'm ready for a break. <laughs>